welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own stories. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. to help give you the resources to identify different biblical literature types. We focused on narrative, poetry, and discourse. Now, when we look at these literature types, it's in an effort to help us read the text in the correct posture, meaning that we can see it and read it how it was intended. Reading a genre gives us certain expectations, and it's important to know what those expectations are. And you don't have to be a literature scholar to read the Bible. That's why I'm so passionate about this and willing to do a podcast, because I think the Bible is for you in all seasons and at all stages. You do not have to be a super word nerd like me. You do not have to go to seminary. The Bible's for you. So these little footnotes, these little things that you can look for are just really to help you, to help you feel not so intimidated and to help give you the courage to just sit down with your Bible and read it. So it definitely helps knowing what kind of text you're reading. For instance, last week, I walked you through some of the context of 1 Corinthians to set up the original tone for 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? We thought it's all about marriage and romance, but it's actually a rebuke. It was telling the church in Corinth to be nicer to one another. Now, if you were listening to that and you thought you could have never seen all that, you feel like you'll never be able to read the Bible, this is what this is all about. I want to give you those resources because I was just like you. It was just eight years ago that somebody sat down and told me that I could read the Bible for myself. That permission, I didn't need it, but man, it made all the difference in the world. And what that wonderful person did for us in that church, us women, is she taught us this really amazing resource called Inductive Bible Study Methods. The biggest thing in that was learning how to see Jesus. My friend Kelly gave me this question that haunts me in the best possible way every time I read the Bible. Where is Jesus in this? And you should be able to see that no matter where you are in the Bible. So this amazing resource of inductive Bible study methods is so helpful because it helps you find where Jesus is in those passages that don't seem like he should be there. So I kind of started this podcast with trying to give you the foundation of that. Where is Jesus in this? So I took something that everybody kind of knows, the disciples, the apostles. Like, how can we see Jesus's character in something as simple as who he picked? Then this last season has been all about seeing God's word. And God's word is a reflection of who he is, his character. In narrative, in poetry, and discourse, God speaks to each and every one of us across time and space. So we see God and we point to the gospel. And that's the point. So I wanted to do that first, because Bible study methods is a fantastic tool, but if used in isolation, without that foundation, it can very quickly become academic, and you can lose the relationship-building part of reading your Bible, 
which is what the Bible's for, is for you to be in relationship with God. Inductive Bible study methods is not anything new. It's actually been around for a really long time. So what is it? Basically, it's using inductive steps to investigate what the Bible is saying. Not what it could say, not what it should say, not what we would like it to say, but simply what is it saying? So I use the new inductive study Bible, English Standard Version, the ESV version, and I'm going to put a link to it down in the show notes. You can buy it on Amazon, but it can be kind of pricey. We actually, a bunch of us girls at church, after taking this class on inductive Bible study methods, we all asked our husbands for one of these Bibles for Christmas. So it was really kind of fun because a bunch of us got an ESV inductive study Bible for Christmas. And the translation, the ESV, that's the version I prefer. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the most correct by any means at all. What that means is it's the most comfortable for me to study with. Now, I make the distinction to study with because ESV is a word for word translation, which means it can be really kind of clunky and awkward for just reading because English is not in the same format as Hebrew and Greek. The sentence structure is different. So when it's translated in that way, sometimes the structure of the sentences can be kind of awkward, but that's really good for studying word for word. So if you're just reading the Bible, it's totally fine if you prefer NIV or NASB or a New Living Translation even. Or you know what, if you're comfortable with the King James, then use that. That's really not the point here. I'm just telling you what I use for my study Bible. Now, in the welcome page of my study Bible, it points a couple of things out. Not only is inductive study really beneficial for the seasoned and new Christian alike, but it's also really important that you learn how to read the Bible for yourself. Because if you're always relying on other people, it's kind of like asking other people to digest your food. So that's a really weird example. Let me explain. The heart of inductive Bible study methods is for you alone to be in relationship with God and his word. Commentaries and devotionals, they have their place, but your day-to-day study can be the most beneficial when it is just you and God Almighty heavily depending on someone else's interpretation on what God told someone else to see in that scripture. That's like having someone else pick out your food, eat it and digest it for you. Not only is that whole concept kind of gross, like mama birds, but you don't get to eat the cake for yourself. (laughs) And you don't get to taste the cake. And or whatever it is that you like, I am preferable to chocolate cake. And I would kind of be bummed if I watched somebody else eat chocolate cake, and then they just described to me what it tastes like. I want the experience for myself. And this is what inductive Bible study methods can do for you. It helps bridge the gap between being able to understand what the word says and even actually being able to understand what your pastor is saying. Sermons are good. Studies are good. Devotionals and commentaries have their place and they're good. But it is about that relationship. Now that I've kind of laid the foundation, 
in this podcast, we're going to be doing a lot of inductive study together over time. But today, I just want to hit a couple of highlights. Like I was saying earlier, these inductive study Bibles can be kind of pricey. And so don't feel like your budget is going to keep you from being able to jump right in. Like maybe you're listening now and you're excited and you really want to go home and study it, but you just can't afford that study Bible. That's totally fine. You don't have to. It is very easy to copy out a chapter that you're reading, to print it out, all those kinds of things. There's lots of different ways that you can do this. You don't have to buy the study Bible. It's just nice to have it all in one place and they have lots of maps and they have several pages at the front to tell you how to do inductive study. So there's some good reminders. Just for today, let's talk about two study methods in particular. They really sound like simple things, but they're going to open a whole new world. So connecting words and verbs. This is the place to start. So the first thing that you're going to need if you're actually writing in a Bible is a very light pen. So I'm partial to gel pens myself, but those are absolutely terrible for using in a Bible because the pages are really thin and it will bleed through. This is just some experience I am passing on to you. Actually, the cheap pens, like the really cheap ones, those are the best for writing in your Bible because they don't saturate the page. Now, if you're printing what you're studying off or if you're copying it down in a notebook, don't worry about it. Use whatever you want. But what you're going to do is you're going to start by just underlining the verbs. That sounds really simple, I know. But when we underline verbs, we get to see what action is taking place, and it's going to help us see who's taking that action and where is it going. So what are verbs? Just a reminder, they're action words. They're what you're doing. So run, jump, skip, those are verbs. So it says who is doing what, and it points to the plot from our narrative, like what is happening? We need the verbs to be able to see that. Now we have connecting words. I put a big box around connecting words. So connecting words are things that connect two things. <laughs> now it may be connecting them in comparison or maybe contrast. It may be telling where the action is happening, but they're words like to, but, therefore, because, so that, since, and if. And I'm going to make a huge list down in the show notes to help you, but there are way more connecting words than I can box. Once you kind of see the list, you'll see what I'm getting at, and you can box whatever connecting words are helpful to you. The one that I think is the most used in the Bible because we don't use it in our day-to-day vocabulary, like we're the most aware of it, is therefore. There's a cute little phrase that's, what's the therefore, therefore? It's pointing you to something. It's a connecting word. So put a big box around it. So these two things, connecting words and verbs. Why are we doing this? What's the point? How does it help us? So let's talk about 1 Corinthians again. (laughs) How did I know all those things about the context? Well, these two things, I truly believe, can get you 70% of the way into understanding the context and almost everything you need about a passage. Now, 70%, for those of you who are like trying to tally it up, is just 
a number I made up. I'm saying it's going to get you most of the way there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. I don't know how to say that name. Don't worry about it. Okay, so we're going to start with just this verse 1. Paul. So now we know who's writing it. Paul is writing it. Called. Now that's a verb. So we're going to underline it. Now, who's he called by? Who's doing the action? By. So that word B-Y, by the will of God. So I'm going to put a big box around the word by. By the will of God to, I'm going to box that, to be, be is a verb, that's your state of being, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So now in this first verse, I have who wrote it, and he was called by the will of God to do what? To be an apostle of Christ Jesus. We're going to continue on to verse 2. And it starts with a connecting word, to, T-O. So put a big box around that. To the church of God, that, that's going to have a box around it also, is in Corinth. So now I know who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church who believes in God. So this is a Christian church that is in Corinth. I know what kind of church it is, and I know where it is. We continue on to, box around that, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called, that's underlined because it's a verb, to be, I actually boxed both of those, but be is technically a verb, called to be saints together with, box around that, all those who in every place call, underline that, it's a verb, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now I know exactly who he is writing to at this church who believes in God. He's writing to those who together call on the name of Jesus, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So Paul's specifically talking to people who have been saved. They're in this church, but they're not just there in the church, like kind of testing it out. They're believers. They've been saved. And they are all in this place together, calling on the name of Jesus. Now, when we skip down to verse 10, it starts with this. I, that's a pronoun. Well, we know who is talking because we did our work in verse one. So that's Paul. Paul appeals to you. Appeal is a verb. That's an action. He's asking. I appeal to, put a box around to, who is Paul appealing to? You, the person who's receiving this letter. The brothers. Now, if you have a study Bible, (laughs) you probably have a footnote on this word that says it could be brothers and sisters. It's a collective you, like y'all. It's everybody included. So Paul is asking the church by, you're going to box that, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is he asking them? That all of you agree. So we're going to put a big box around the word that, and we're going to underline agree. And that, big box around that, there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So we have gotten so much information 
from three verses. We know who is writing it. We know to whom they were writing. We know that he's writing to the people in the church that believe in God, who Jesus Christ is their professed Lord. And then we also see that they don't agree. They have division in the church. They have conflicting theologies because they're not of the same mind. They're believing different things. And they're also treating each other differently because they're coming across different judgments. That's three verses, y'all. At this point, I haven't listened to a sermon. I haven't read a commentary. I haven't even looked at the intro of the book. And yet I have all this information. This is what inductive Bible study methods does for you. It also makes you slow down. It makes you check your preconceived ideas. Now, where this is really helpful is when you're reading and observing text that you think you already know, or that may just be familiar. And you get to see these passages in a whole new light, which is kind of what I did with Love is Patient, Love is Kind. You get to see the context. So let's look at a different type of literature using this same method. Let's look at poetry. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Six little verses. And yet we have kind of boiled this down to something that you say when you die. Like, this is what you want said over you when you have to be forced to lie down in green pastures, being this metaphor for being put in the ground. And honestly, that's kind of all I thought about it. Then in my home group, we really looked at this. And then there was a song where this is just sung, but we had to really look at it in individual words and verses and see all the things that it shows us about God's character. And this psalm came alive for me. It wasn't just a dead psalm for dead people. So I'm going to read to you just the verbs. Just the verbs from this psalm. Is, not want, makes, lie down, leads, restores, leads, walk, fear, no, are with, comfort, prepare, anoint, overflows, follow, and dwell. Even just reading just the verbs, you see this amazing like call to action. You're leading, being restored, you're walking, and then it changes. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. For is a connecting word. 
So now we have this change. There's all this action and, and I'm doing things. I'm, I'm lying down and I'm being led and I'm being restored and I, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because God is with me. And now I'm comforted. There's a table prepared for me. I'm anointed. My cup overflows and I get to follow and just dwell with the Lord. I get to just be with him. This is about being with God, not just dying, because we see that as kind of a bleak thing. Saying, even now, here, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I have nothing to fear. I can sit down with those who scare me because you're bigger than them. God, you're bigger. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because I'm being led by God. He leads twice in this small little passage. God leads. I follow. And when I'm following, goodness and mercy. And I get to dwell in his house. This psalm, unfortunately, is usually associated with death in our society. And when that's all you see, that's all you will see. But using inductive study methods, we're forced to slow down. And then when we slow down, we get to see a ridiculously loving God. It is so amazing to see that. But that takes time. You have to slow down. (laughs) Now, when you look at these verbs, if you are a word nerd and you're kind of freaking out, or maybe if you absolutely hated grammar and you don't want to do this, don't stress out. Okay. No one's going to check your homework. Whenever you're looking at verbs and I said to be, those are the state of being. That means I am, she is, to be. Those are to be verbs. Don't stress out too much about them, okay? Just underline the verbs that you know and are sure that are verbs. And I promise you, this is like working out. The more you do it, the easier it will get. It can feel like a school assignment sometimes. I'm a homeschool mom, I know. (laughs) And I worry about that sometimes. But slowing down, spending 30 minutes on a couple of verses, it can seem like overkill. But this is a relationship, right? We want to be in relationship with God. And that takes time. For instance, my husband and I, we both have tattoos. I have quite a few, but he has a couple of really big tattoos on his calves. (laughs) And if you just met him, you would probably come up with some preconceived notions about who he is and what kind of life he leads and why he has giant tattoos on his legs. But then you might ask him what those tattoos are. (laughs) One tattoo is his family crest. His family comes from a Scottish line and they had clans and they had symbols and little Latin sayings and it's all on his family crest. He's very proud of his family. And there's a whole backstory that goes with that. His other tattoo is of St. Michael because my husband's name is Mike. And it was really important to him to get this tattoo because he wasn't always a believer. 
But you wouldn't get those things if you didn't have a conversation with him and ask. You wouldn't necessarily know that I'm actually just a boring homeschool mom. (laughs) If I showed up on my motorcycle with all my tattoos sticking out and I used to have crazy colored hair, like you may not know that I have a Bible study podcast, (laughs) but then you talk to me, right? And we'd be in a relationship and you get to know me and you know, this is actually what I'm passionate about. Getting to know someone takes time and takes questions. It takes spending time with that person and having a back and forth. And God gave you a way to have a back and forth with him. He gave us his word. And that's what we get to do. And we get to ask questions and we get to pray and say, what is this? Or I don't feel good about this. I'm confused about this. Or I cannot believe how patient and loving you are that you would make a table for me and my enemies, that you would anoint me, that you would provide so much for me that my cup would overflow. Even though I never asked for it, even though I never earned it, you just love me that much. That's what we get to see when we spend this time with God. And it takes spending time. We have to slow down look at what's there and spend the time getting to know him. And when you do, I guarantee you, you'll see that he's worth it.